My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to Transmissions, Aquarium Drunkard's weekly interview podcast. I'm Jason P. Woodbury, as you heard at the top of the show. And today I am joined by artist and creator Meredith Graves. She is best known for her work with the punk band Perfect Pussy, uh, her label Honor Press, and as the director of music at Kickstarter, where she's also the head witch in charge and responsible for the magic and divination section of the crowdfunding platform. Uh, I really enjoyed this talk. I just had an absolute blast talking with Meredith and hanging out. We spoke a lot about magic and arcana. We talked about the British occultist and comic book author and author of, you know, regular books and movies, Alan Moore. Uh, We talked a lot about purgative rituals uh, in regards to... Uh, her 2014 album, Say Yes to Love. We talked about the work of previous Transmissions guest Mitch Horowitz, her time at MTV News and all the incredible artists she interacted with back then. Uh, We touched on Lana Del Rey, Wilco. We got into it all, and I'm really very happy to share this conversation with you. Uh, Before we get into it, though, I do want to encourage you, if you dig the show and its archive, which features conversations with people like Lee Ronaldo and Steve Shelley of Sonic Youth, Kate LeBon, Richard Thompson, Michael Rother, Bill Frizzell, and many more, uh, please consider leaving us a five-star rating or a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Um, specifically, the Apple podcast platform would be a great place for you to go and drop us a five-star and tell people what it is you enjoy about the show. Uh, that helps new people find it, and we really do appreciate you helping us connect with new listeners however you do so. If you want to take your support even further, you can check out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon. All right, so let's get into it. Here's Meredith Graves on this week's edition of Transmissions. We started off by talking about my uh, washing machine, which as of the time of this recording is still broken. Hopefully it will be fixed soon. Hi. Hi, how are you? How are you? I'm good. I'm really glad to speak with you. Yeah, how's your washing machine? <laughs> Do you, uh, the truth is that it is still not fixed. Um, which, curses. Yeah, it, it is a curses situation. I, um, we've got a, the supply chain is, is causing issues for us, apparently, or at least that's what we're told. Um, right. So there's a high-tech computer board that's supposed to go in our washing machine that I'm sure is supposed to make our life easier in some way, but is instead causing the opposite. So I've become reacquainted with the laundry mat, and it's, uh, you know, it's humbling. <laughs> You're regaining access to a lost community hub, you know? Yeah, exactly. In New York, you learn a lot at the laundromat, like just chilling there a couple times and you like, you get some new connections, you like learn some tips and tricks, but like about the larger surrounding area. It's kind of like, you know, like if you played Pokemon ever, it's like you go to the Pokemon Center and sometimes if you (laughs) engage with the right NPC, you get clues. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. I, I go, I just read. I just read at the laundromat and I try not to look at my phone, but I inevitably end up looking at my phone. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm the guy who edits our podcast and does our audio. He and I are doing like a, a mini book club on Alan Moore's Promethea. So oh, that's great. So I was so I, I reread the first 
volume of that the last time I was at the lawn. It was pretty good. That was pretty fun. I feel like also Alan, somewhere Alan Moore not knowing, but also completely knowing, like straightened up and smiled for a second, just knowing that someone was out in this <laughs> reading. He's like, ah, it's alive. Like, I, I love Alan Moore. I'm a huge, like regressive level fan. Like to full disclosure, I like reread his entire Wikipedia article just for fun within the last seven days. <laughs> so, so, okay. Cool. Okay. So, the, the, all this just has to stay in the podcast because it's already great. So uh, let me just welcome you to Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. Alan Moore is also my favorite um, or one of my favorites. And I sometimes, I think you and I discussed briefly, I had Mitch Horowitz on the on the um, podcast here on Transmissions. And he's great. But he, one of the things he brings up is like how often stuff that impacts you very, very young sticks with you kind of forever, right? And mm-hmm. and I absolutely think that like reading Alan Moore's late '90s work when I started re- when I was like in junior high, before I knew what Watchmen was, I was reading Alan Moore's like Supreme, which is like Rob this Rob Liefeld character that was basically like superman but he's meaner or something he'll like kill he'll kill people um and so then alan moore was like took over this this title and sort of like using the tools of the age right the sort of dark age of comics as he almost went to uh went on to label it you know sort of like playing with like the misogyny and the and the weird aggro masculinity of like the extreme 90s comics thing he starts this weird rift on like riff on like silver age superman and it's all funny and silly and magical and really like charming and outright goofy and anyway so i start reading all this stuff and I don't know. Yeah, it totally has stuck with me. You know what I mean? Like, I, I learned so much on accident. Uh, and I do love, like you said, that he snuck that stuff in there and it it's alive. Like, that livingness is, is weird. What, what's, your, what's your favorite Alan, Alan Moore thing? Oh, gosh. I think, <laughs> if I got to be totally frank, it's just his existence in general. Yeah. Like, the, the role that he has played historically and his his background and also just, like, to be totally predictable, his career engagement with women and women's issues and wanting to be a genuine participant in an ally to women yeah. and, and non-male people. So I always think uh, of him as a really good role model. You know, if anyone is like old school and worried about like, what's going to get my kid into, is it D&D or speed metal or comic books or this, that, and the other thing, like give them an Ellen Moore comic. They're going to learn a whole lot about gender equity and so much about fantastic storytelling you know even his biography is a fabulous read yeah i just i think he's a totally admirable wizard of tremendous sincerity you know it's good to live at the same time as that guy i couldn't agree more and i love the way i love the way you put that i think the one of the things that i appreciate so much about his his work was how helpful it was hearing him basically articulate what I believe is like a profound universal truth or cosmic truth rather, which is that art and and magic, I mean, there's functionally no difference between the two things. They are like, at least in the way, I mean, I know people who are staunch, you know, like by the, by the books, you know, it's very scientific, completely materialist people who will slip into the most floral, uh, woo-woo language when they're talking about a song they wrote or heard or, or whatever. And so, you know, for me, it's like having him to articulate that is, and the way his work articulates that and engages with that back, back and forth to me is just like, so it's so cool. It, it is magic it's expressed in this way that is immediate. I don't know. Mm-hmm. No, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And it's something that I think about a lot because I think it's very perplexing and very sweet in equal measure, which is when you're hanging out with people who are like staunch scientismists who are just, no, we know what we know. And it's like, you can't tell them anything about like the actual <laughs> textbook 
paper historical record of the transition from alchemy to chemistry or astrology to astronomy. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, sure. Eh, you can't really get into that. And we're atheists and we know better and we love whoever we love. And it's great. We all know people like this. They're tremendous people. We love everyone in this conversation. Right. And then all of a sudden you're at the D and D table and they're casting spells with like <laughs> great sincerity and they understand the magical systems. And it's just because that's the way it is here. And you know, you can see them in their suspension of disbelief, in their moment of like traction with their greater good, when they're just just vibing, as the kids might say, as I've been guilty <laughs> of like saying a lot lately. Um, when someone like that is just vibing, you're like, okay, Mr. Big Boss Scientist, how do you feel about magic right now? Because like you don't want me to pull you by the ankles out of orc world any more than you want to try and fly to the moon. Uh, or the center of your hollow earth or whatever it may be. Right. So yeah, that suspension of the science mentality in the moment, the transitional magic of, uh, like you said, art and music and magic and where the lines blur there. There's something else I really like bury the lead, duh, but like uh, the main thing that I view as existing at that intersection now uh, is gaming. Mm. Like if you think about it, what were the first things that people would have done, right? When we stopped being lizards and we evolved and we became people like before language, before, before set societies, we probably like figured out that certain things we can draw on walls, we can make art and we can like make tokens and we can participate in, you know, group activities in some way. You see like strong evidence for the intersection of the three, the inseparability of the three in the earliest human activities, right? And it was all very bound up in ritual and suspension of, of reality. And, you know, this is where all good things uh, come from, yeah. I think. But yeah, it's really indistinguishable. If you start to think about like the human lizard brain and what we're kind of engineered to do, if we had nothing else, if they dropped us on a new planet, you know, very kind of watchman feeling there, yeah. um, what would we do? We'd probably figure out that we could use our voices to make interesting sounds and we might use them to pretend we're something else or to sing something beautiful. Yeah. And either way, the people around us will at some point start to participate or play along. Yeah. It's kind of nice when you think about it. Yeah. No, I mean, beyond that's beyond nice. Uh, it's, it's so inspiring. And as you are, I mean, I, I've been, I've been doom scrolling a lot this week. I've been in, in, you know, a pretty uh, bleak, mode and for listeners because this will air later you know we're talking the early days of the uh the russian attack on the ukraine and yeah so i yeah it, it's so weird in these times that you have to seek that sort of sense of relief and of uh of expression of of like you said our better selves you know especially when stuff gets bad it's it's insidious and weird the way the part of my brain that goes like, well, you're doing something wrong, you know, by not sort of like staying in the, the misery, you know, sort of stream. It, anyway, I'm mostly just talking about Twitter probably right now, to be honest. I just need to get <laughs> off Twitter. I need to get off Twitter more. Well, I really enjoyed actually just to, to fully circle back. I really enjoyed the episode you did with Mitch Horowitz. And frankly, per a lot of your conversation, I'm not really sure what we're going to talk about today because you two covered all <laughs> the bases. <laughs> He's like a superhero, right? As in like a superhero of mine and of a lot of people's, but a superhero. And in talking about Napoleon Hill yeah. and in talking about new thought and the early self-help, what I like to call black cover self-help or like men's self-help <laughs> concepts from theosophy and spiritualism and Freemasonry got like filtered through the lens of 20th century industrialism and capital. Capitalism and like, yes. you know, another way the printing press becomes the premier cult technology. And the people who respond to that today in the secret with, well, well let me just manifest myself in Mercedes Benz, your stuff doesn't work, right? Mm -hmm. When you say you can bring about anything you want, you have everything you need inside of you. I like to read that as, because I know you two also talked about being very compassionate towards the secret and similar like means of spreading that one message, whether it's bad brains or, or Napoleon Hill, it's that idea of we have the entirety of human history within us from the art, music and games or force mm -hmm. on up. Yeah. And you can, you can take whatever is coming at you and put it through those innate processes and those innate human practices. And you can see what comes out the other side. And this is where we end up with art and music and performance and games, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, so I listened to say yes to love to get ready for our talk. I revisited it. Um, and as well as some of your solo tunes, um, and it, it all rips and it was really, really, <laughs> I, I had, so, I had so much fun revisiting say yes to love. Uh, and and I wondered. So something we could talk about. Are are you are you making music these days? Are you working on stuff? 
what's your relationship with the with actually you know making music like these days well for the last almost four years now i've been the director of music at kickstarter and so my purview on making music right now is that i get to help people all over the world in every possible genre and background and purpose and goal imaginable make music every day yeah. and so i've been absolutely blessed hashtag blessed <laughs> beyond reason um that i get to get up every morning and help people all over the world make music i can't imagine what i had to do in a past life to be in the position i'm in now so i've really tried to focus an immense amount of my energy on yeah. that and i've been very very lucky to be able to do this for a while but i've talked to my friends about what i think you're really driving at here which is like am i writing music am i touching instruments right now no but here is why it's very specific you got to forgive me on this. Um, I am not someone who at this point in my life or at any point in recent memory has played music because I just live to play the guitar or to sing or because I want to be famous or because I want to tour or because I want to travel. My key motivational, deep internal driver for being in bands is to do juvenile borderline criminal shit with my <laughs> friends and with people I like. And we have been locked inside our houses for two years. Right. And we we cannot safely do that right now. I have a very bad habit of believing that there's no such thing as a group project. So I don't just sit at home with my guitar and like write endless music. Um, I do things I can do on my own if I'm stuck here on my own. But the moment that it feels safe to do so again, I'd like to start 10 bands and I'd like every single one of them to sound increasingly like nuclear assault. <laughs> I've been saying this for two years. Now, for the last few years, I've had a wonderful time um, truly overwhelmingly wonderful time. I do get to make music on the occasions when some friends will call me up and say, Hey, we're doing a weird project. Would you like to sing on it? Would you like to write for it? Would you like to come in and produce something? Okay. That is probably my favorite way to go about making music yeah. in a lot of ways. It's like, I, I don't know. I grew up loving the kinds of records where, what was that? The the sixth, I think it's called. Like the, there was a magnetic field side project where he wrote all the songs and then they had a different singer on every record. And then Dintel had a record where there was a different singer on every track. And lots of bands do stuff like this, but I've always been a real sucker for that. And so if I can come in and sing on one song or like write for a project that will only do five songs for and then it's over, yeah. that's my favorite thing. So last year I got asked to be part of a super group. And I, I, I got to sing one song on this record for a project, uh, a, a coven of mine's called Time Crystal Wizard. Okay. That was super fun. That is uh, myself and HR from Bad Brains and Killer Mike and several other very cool people playing instruments, people doing amazing art. That was just like a quiet little five song record that got dropped last year at the benevolent uh, gesture of the mysterious engineer who made it, who I'm not at liberty to disclose, but we had a lovely time. Wow. And so that's, yeah, it was fun. So I somehow, I missed that. I listened, I listened to touchscreen, which I think that was something you had done with, is that House, House of, Feelings? of Feelings? That was, yeah, that was, that's another that one. That was really cool. And it was, thank you. That was, a, I mean, it's, it's a lot of fun to listen to, but I mean, again, you know, lyrically very, uh, engaging as well but but i'm gonna have to dismal yeah it was pretty very <laughs> dismal <laughs> that song is dark as i can't hell. figure out why you'd have any reason to feel dismally these days um but uh but somehow you know i can get it <laughs> um well that so something i was interested was was 2014 was when that perfect pussy album came out and and i wonder you know you you've already alluded to the fact that you're head of music at kickstarter you're also there head witch in charge uh the witch starter um and we'll get it we'll true. get into that a little bit more but i'm curious in 2014 when that record came out um what was your relationship with like metaphysical thinking like at that time um wh where where were you at sort of uh in the time that surrounded making that record in the, in terms of that stuff thank you i don't think anyone's ever asked me that before and in my mind the entire record that is Say Yes to Love is goosed up with Easter eggs that allude to a lot of esoteric and occult practices and includes some like very strange metaphysical twists and turns. And I always see them as being very obvious, but I think that's the first time anyone's ever asked me that. So I have, as I've outlined before, and as I will spare you the retelling of, I grew up very devoted to metaphysics and very, very interested in religion and world mythology. And like, by the time I was 11 years old, we had Wicca books, it was on, right? So if I'm writing that record when I'm like 27 or something like yeah. that, um, I've been at it for a really long time, right? 
And where I was at at that point in my life was really interesting because <laughs> I was, other than the band, I was living kind of what I would detail as a wholesome existence, where I was very, very focused on like working in a community garden and living in my little neighborhood where I would teach, you know, little anarcho workshops on how to ferment things in your own house. And I would go to my job at the store where I would help teenage girls pick out their prom dresses and like repair them all day long. And I was in this nice little relationship. And you know, we were aspiring towards cute little permaculture, et cetera, et cetera. And I was playing in a new band and it was wonderful. And then as is usually the catalyst for things, it all came crashing down. I found out dude was cheating on me and I was destroyed. And all of a sudden my life got upended, which is a time in many people's lives when if the circumstances are right, a person subconsciously or otherwise is liable to put their foot down and say, I will stand for this no more. I'm going to change my life. And the magical doors kind of blow open. And so where I was at metaphysically about two months after that, because it was like, boom, we broke up. I got out of there. I'm like, we have more time for band practice now. Boom, boom, boom. We played four shows and we were off to the races. We had come to New York. We had played a few shows. We had been asked to play CMJ, like labels were interested. And I'm standing there like, we've played four shows. What's going <laughs> on? We had to write a record. Right. We had not discussed a plan to do that. And all of a sudden it's like, people like our band. Oh my God, we have to figure something out. We get home and I'm looking at, you know, the astrological happenings around when we're going to be recording and I'm struggling to write because, you know, I'm scared. We only had a few, so we just kind of started. I'm like, where do we go from here? And then, and wow, just because I've never been asked this question before, it's kind of hard to put it into words, even though I've been thinking about it for the better part of a decade because of how fast everything happened, because of how quickly we went from barely existing to like people are interested in us and we have to have a record ready to put out if we want to like continue to have fun and play shows. I effectively channeled the record in real time through a combined variety of practices and sources, everything from the sort of histrionic body processes that I would implement to get the sound and the stage performance that I did in that band. Like there is borderline like tantric sacrifice going on when you do the kinds of things to your body that I had fun doing on stage when I was working on that project to taking my own spiritual journals and finding words that I repeated more than five times in a certain number of pages, putting them on the index cards, throwing them down and taking three and having that be the start of the sentence to yeah. sourcing I, metaphysical concepts from Barth, Roland Barth show up a lot in there. Um, so do specific references to positions of the moon on the day the song was recorded. But I was doing what I recognize now. I didn't necessarily have the, the, the references for it, which came later for me, but was the kind of, and I'm not saying it's the quality of, let me stress that part, but the kind of work of someone like an Austin Osmond's Yeah. Or other 20th century kind of a little more chaotic a culture artists who are suddenly found in themselves to feel like receptors for something else. Like I had hit this peak of stress. I had advocated for myself to such an extreme things were popping off. And instead of getting scared, I just did as much as I possibly could to orient myself toward a universe where everything would be okay. And it came pouring out in real time. And so it was kind of an entire band that became a purgative ritual yeah. where I was writing in real time about what was happening as people were becoming interested in the band and journalists and people started writing about me as if they knew me and it was weird. And I mean, the, the guy, all caps, we were still acquainted with one another. He came to the studio while I was recording, like everything was overlapping and happening in real time. And, and the words were coming from somewhere else. Yeah. And so when I look back on where I was metaphysically at the time when that record was made, which was also the time when it was all happening and the time when the experience started and, you know, it really all felt like, there's a word from the astrologer Robert Bresny, pronoia, the opposite of paranoia. It's the belief that the entire universe is some, for some reason conspiring in your favor. Yeah. yeah. That was what it felt like. And it pushed me to be as loud as I was and as fearless as I was when I'm fundamentally an absolutely terrified person. <laughs> <laughs> and, and flash forward however many years later, here we are. So that's a very long-winded way of explaining it, but it was one of the loudest and most engaging uh, periods of my life for actually being a working witch and having to deal with all of these things around me and kind of like control the, the uh, circumstances in one way or another as best I could. I had to like harness the wind. You know? I, there's, I, I, there's so many, there's so many ways 
I could respond to that because I, I have like 90 thoughts <laughs> while you were talking, all of them uh, exciting and thrilling to me. What I, one of the first things is that I kind of think about the, 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 I think, and I should probably, I should say it on this episode of the podcast uh, because I'm, I'm new ish to the, to a lot of this material. You know, I grew up extremely uh, religious though. And so I recognize the the outline of most stuff if that makes sense you know mm-hmm. what i mean totally. and i and i mean that in like a in a in generally a positive way although my faith has changed or what and is you know mutated and grown but mm-hmm. but it's pretty common right like in sort of magical practice and in in ritual and in the occult this notion that like in times of great intensity of feeling you know mm-hmm. i think mm-hmm. about twin peaks right the door to the lodge is opened by great love or 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 yes. great fear you know mm-hmm. the way that the entities in the twin peaks mythos feed on our on our on either of those two things you know um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so i uh, so i imagine that in this moment where you're just really being like hit on all sides by this i wonder if you felt like you talked about that pronoia thing do you attribute that to essentially just being in touch, potentially not necessarily entirely of your own will, but being in touch with who you truly are? Is that what you sort of in, attribute that that influx of of sort of channeled energy? Does, is what I'm is what I'm saying meaning? It, yeah, it's just wow, this has gotten so challenging. So I'm like, <laughs> did I have enough lunch to actually posit a true answer to this question? Like. What have I done with my life? What are we talking about here? Um, I just, it's, yes. yeah. Yes, and. Yes, and who I am, who everyone is, and just like full stop period there, like what that means. Um, yeah. I think it was one of the major times in my life, and it's something that's happened since and with more frequency, when a new opportunity raises itself and I'm actually able to put the paralyzing anxiety that I deal with every waking second of my life down for five seconds and say, wait, you know, uh, is it that I know who I am or that I know that that's infinitely more malleable than I've been trained up to believe? Sure, sure. And it's, it, for me, it's always been more of a question of, well, why not? I'm not going to lose an arm. I'm not going to get shot out of a cannon. Like, okay, why not? You know, I'm someone who can be anyone just like everyone. If you put thought and decision towards something, we make unconscious decisions all day. Okay. If people are interested in my band, why not? Yeah. And the, the, the stress I live under cannot be overstated, but in that eye of the cyclone moment when it's like, oh my God, we've played four shows. We have four songs and they want us to go play some festival in New York city. The situation becomes so ludicrous that it's like my my blood pressure plummets and i'm just like yes sure why not let's just see what happens because it, it's the moment it's the moment where the self falls away yeah is what it actually feels yeah. like when it's all pure pure decision and action because when you're on stage punching yourself in the face with a microphone until you bleed puke it's like <laughs> you're 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 closer to the godhead arguably you're less thinking about like the long game for charting success on streaming platforms <laughs> whatever the case may be. yeah so that that makes me think about the title of the record say yes to love almost in like a different light too right like say why not to love you know say uh let's yeah, yeah, I did also just this week. I saw Jackass Forever. So this thing you're talking about, the sort of like uh, the brutal trans, the the brutality of transcendence in certain physical situations, has been on my mind as well as I think about those guys. Sub- subject right? and no, and those guys Jackass and gals. Those there's gals in this in this new one chiefly, which is a new is a cool thing. Yeah, but just like <laughs> talk about that like. And I think, but I think that that's also something that you've written about. Uh, you're great. I reread, I reread your great Andrew W.K. Uh, Lana Del Rey uh, essay too, which is is really great. But I think about that the the ritualistic uh, the image of Andrew W.K. on the cover of I Get Wet, right, where there's he's he's mm-hmm, bleeding, mm-hmm. and and so when you're talking about being on stage, subjecting yourself to what you're doing. It of course makes me think of Iggy Pop crawling around in glass and peanut butter, and it makes me think of Andrew WK, and it makes me think of all this stuff. And it's 
I don't necessarily feel like right now in our culture, I think there's a lot of valid questioning against uh, about some of like the the extreme lengths that we sometimes, I don't know. I've had Jeff Tweedy, I've interviewed Jeff Tweedy for, for, uh, for Aquarium Drunkard. He's one of my favorite songwriters, and he's somebody who, despite not having a magical worldview at all, I think his, his actual creative process really lines up beautifully with so much of, of what I'm, you know, found in occult studies and in magical thinking, all that stuff. But he, he will kind of talk about how, like, and Lynch is this way too, you know, like, we don't have to suffer, we don't have to suffer to create. In fact, we can't be suffering to truly create, you know, or, mm-hmm. or rather, what, when we create under those conditions, we're doing it in spite of them, not because of them. The suffering is not what generates the art, you know. But I think about the willingness to the way the jackass guys, <laughs> you know, we spend <laughs> so much time running from pain, you know. When you see someone embracing it, that's the different thing, right? That's a different that's a different way of thinking about this. And I don't know exactly where I'm going with this. So I'm hoping you can help me here, Meredith. <laughs> help me no. steer out of whatever I'm steering into. <laughs> that's when it comes to a culture, recognizing that your only real question at the end of the day will all should always be who's driving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, what's going on? Right. The answer is yes, my dude. Let's get up tomorrow and do it yeah. again. First of all, Wilco. Wilco. Uh, necromance the spirit of Woody Guthrie, yeah. right? Yeah. And like made up songs of his that didn't exist. So I'd like to hear all about your little friend, Mr. Tweedy, <laughs> and he doesn't have a magic. I think that album is magical as hell. And the documentary yes. about the making of it was at the time, my father, my dad introduced me to so much of music and why we care about it. Like yeah. I've never questioned, I've never questioned that. I've never questioned that music is magic because I was raised with a super musical family. Um, yeah. Was obsessed with the documentary because he's also obsessed with documentaries. And, you know, I watched, you know, those people try to pull the essence, the spirit, the, the, the energetic current of Woody Guthrie out of his physical handwritten yeah. work. Um, yeah. That's magical. Yeah. That's irre- that's irreparably magical. They magical, <laughs> irreparably magical. They can't undo that gesture. Yeah. Yeah. So, very cool. Very cool. Also. Yes. I just totally agree with you. You don't need to worry about backing out of that. Um, we know that interesting things can happen when we enjam things in unexpected ways, whether this is like sonically or creatively. And we also know that humans tend to fall into patterns and the creative problem solving and this, that, and the other thing. When you come up against something that is so excruciating, it feels like it's going to stop your life. If you can afford yourself, even just as a thought experiment, a moment of going, hang on, what if I loved this instead? Or what if I just put my belly up to this instead? Or what if I felt this instead of feeling resistant to yes. it, which means I'm recognizing it as a feeling, knowing feelings will pass or whatever the case may be, which will allow me to develop a, a relationship to it instead of letting it attack me That's or right. it become me or whatever the case may be. That is precisely just quickly like the demonstrative example was making that album. Yeah. Was I am writing in real time about weird, weird men on Twitter from the sewers of the music journalism world commenting on how I dress and the fact that I had just gotten dumped and they didn't want to get on stage and have a ton of people look at me. And also I have not been hanging out in Brooklyn. I don't know how people dress. I don't know anyone. I'm so awkward, like all this different, I didn't want to do it. So I just said, okay, what if I just hugged this set of circumstances? Um, I'm not sure that's what some you know, legendary occultists of note mean when they talk about approaching the abyss or crossing the abyss, but like, just like walking up to it and saying, okay, yeah, what now? Yeah. You know, it makes it hurt less sometimes. I think in some, there's less numinous ways to discuss it too. I think like therapeutic approaches to, to processing things, you know, we have clinical language for the same idea. We have religious language for the same idea. Yeah. You, you, you know what I'm saying? No, yeah. absolutely. And again, to go back to Mitch, you know, who, who is somebody whose work means so much to me, you know, and has helped me really sort some of this stuff out. One of the things I like about his, his vibe in general is his sit, like throw it all at the problem. So, so when we talk about, you know, clinical, when we talk about the physiological side of all the stuff that we're discussing, that's all, that's all valid too. You know, that's all, that's all Mm -hmm. real. And we have to, you know, we have to, we have to explore 
any solution. A solution is a solution. So, so find a solution, you know? And so if you're not wired to think, I'm talking more to the listener, I guess, but if you're not wired to think magically, like, sure, then think, think another way, right? Like imagine how to do it. But, but when you were talking about that resistance to even the feeling, you know, I think about how much pain comes from that and how much, how deeply that approach gets internalized. I think, uh, um, Mm -hmm you know, in, in our, through our culture, through uh, the sort of like the psychic landscape that we grew up in, you know, and I, you know, and like, you'll hear like Alan Watts talking about somebody walking down the street, right. And it's cold out and they're bundled up and they're tensed against the cold, you know? And I, Mm -hmm. like the first time I heard that, like him do that little speech thing, I was like, oh my God, I've, I've, my neck has been tense for the past 15 years of my life. You know what I mean? Like I have since probably puberty on, I've been like physically tense and it's like, what is that? Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know. I guess it's resistance in a certain way to just a lot of stuff. And then when you recognize, not that it, not that my neck isn't still like that most of the time, but you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. That's such an interesting, I mean, that sounds like such a, such a, a crazy moment for you, you know, and like you said, it's been a, it's been about a decade. Um, and how cool is it that that, do you ever revisit say yes to love? I mean, do you, do you ever listen to your own music? Is that weird? Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, sure. No, I really don't, but this is my historical approach. Like, because I am so wired to be that kind of, well, okay, why not? No matter what comes up. Yeah. Um, I've been in bands and making music and recording music since I was like in middle school right. and playing a million instruments and doing theater and this, that, and, and it kind of like the only thing that will keep you, the only thing that's ever made sense to me is treating everything kind of flat, at least at first, mm-hmm. like this is as important as this is as important as this and deserves all the care. So if I'm making a zine, if I'm playing in a band, if it's just spotlighting in a friend's cover band, if it's a band I'm doing, it's all the same. You put this, which is to say you play the same show for four people that you do for 4,000 people. If you don't play till you puke, you're not doing it right. You put everything into everything That's right. and you kind of do that. So I don't really revisit it. Also, I'm like very non-materialistic. I don't even think I have a copy of the record. I don't have anything. Wow. Um, I, I don't have merch. I don't from any of the bands. I was actually a record that did come out 10 years ago was my first band uh, who we were lucky enough to do a split with the mighty Pansram from Fort Myers, Florida, who will always be one of my favorite bands, not just my favorite hardcore experimental bands. That record came out 10 years ago this month, as I was reminded. It's a fun seven inch um, that we had a blast also co-committing on the art for uh, Panzer fronted by John Fahey, who used to write for Maximum Rock and Roll, like one of the smartest people ever. And it was nice to kind of sit and revisit that. So maybe at times of like peak anniversary, but in general, no, because I've always had a very um, photocopy it and throw it out. Yeah. Or later on learning about this is just an example of a magical practice but make your sigil put a ton of time and concentrate all of your energy into it and then burn it and flush the ashes down the toilet like that's how i treat a lot of art i think this is also because a lot of the art that i do that isn't this kind of stuff like okay so a piece of writing lives on the internet forever you can look up the first thing i ever published and read it but the news cycle is so much and so intense that the likelihood of anyone revisiting it is low right the flip side in this other sense is that i'm like a fiber artist and I like to cook and I like to have plants. I like to, you know, the historical record is what it is in those areas because decay yeah. is a real thing. So, so much of the work that I do in general, like, I don't think my writing and my thoughts and my ideas will live on forever. I think the zines I photocopied will disintegrate and the clothes that I sew will hopefully like hang on for a while. Like I've owned many pieces of clothing in my life that are several hundred years old. Will mine? Cool. I won't be around to see it. I hope that happens, but like, yeah. In general, that embracing of decay has been really critical to my approach to this stuff. So like, also just like, I don't know, after that writing is kind of reading your own voice. And then I was literally on TV for a few years where I had to look at my own face and hear my own voice constantly. And so I'm just, do I need to sit and listen to myself? No. Do I feel compassion for 26 year old me? Just doing, doing the best job that was possible at the time a little bit. Yeah. So you're talking, so you're talking about how you found yourself involved with MTV news, right? Yeah, yeah. So can I just say that not only um, was I a huge fan of this moment that found people like yourself and, and so many other great, thoughtful writers at the hallowed institution that is MTV, this pop cultural force mm-hmm. where I was like, holy shit, this is going 
this is a great sign. This is a, this is a, a, a this is a beacon that that things are about to change. And <laughs> mm-hmm. it was true. Things changed so much over the years that followed, um, but not the way that I was optimistically hoping for. Um, did did you enjoy your time at MTV? I mean, it it, it must have been a trip. You you outlined it very very well. And let me just add like all of the weirdness that could possibly heap on top of that as if it were just a, our ice cream cake of insanity. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. Jessica Hopper, Holly Anderson, Jane Costin, Jamil Smith, Alex Papadimus, Stan, like, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, you know, Gabby, Haley, just everyone that we had on that stuff, Crystal Bell, who's still there. Like the geniuses in our newsroom, Hanif, you know, the people who would come in and write for us, the people who we had covering the election of Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, and all the musical things that were happening at that time, when, if you look at that cast of people also think we're now on the Justin Bieber and Drake beat, right. as well as everything that's going on in the world. And it made for this incredible, it was the weirdest, I felt like I was in grad school, Yeah, you know, like when I found out that I was being considered for this position, that I'd gotten this position, I spent they, I thought I was just going to meet the people and we met up for, this was like uh, one of the last drinks I ever had in my life. I've been sober for six Mm. years and I quit drinking completely about two weeks before I started that job. But just after I found out that I had gotten it, Mm. right. It just happened to be in that window. Um, And I went and I had a beer and I remember I was about halfway through my beer when they were just like, by the way, you got the job. And I think I literally pounded the beer, said, thank you, sprinted three blocks down and called one of my family members just screaming at the top of my lungs saying, I have no business doing this. I have no business doing this. And that's the best part. Yeah. <laughs> like uh. This rules. Why would they pick me? This is incredible. And then really what I got out of it was in addition to like, like my father was a television news reporter. So I grew up being around reporting on TV. I didn't go to journalism school. I had like the school of these streets as a kid, just yeah. living in a TV station in my small town. Oh. So I knew how to do TV because I watched my dad doing it. Not because I had any formal training myself, just because I had grown up in the business of local news in the peak era of eighties and nineties TV news reporting on a local level yeah. right in Syracuse, New York. So I get on TV and I'm just like, Oh man, we're inventing these new processes. We have this new newsroom. Everyone thinks there's so much like process and really, really quickly, of course, I figured out that there was like, I could push some boundaries. Yeah. So I would put up artists more like, you know, and everyone of course is very much like I it was in total deference to all of the aforementioned. Like I was absolutely amazed to be working with those people all the time, but I would make sure that for instance, if we were covering an, a story of great importance, like uh, there was a bit of, very big rape case going on at the time at an American university. And I would try to make sure that if I got to cover that, I would make a joke about drowning said rapes and it would get in. <laughs> and like, I would do stuff like that. I got to ask, you know, curious questions of people. I got to have really unprecedented interactions with so many artists that I grew up loving. Like I felt like the luckiest person in the world, but in addition to the whole walking on red carpets and being on television, meeting celebrities thing, I, I knew journalism when I went into it because of my dad. So I knew it was just a ton of work and I took it insanely seriously. The greatest experience of my life was working with those people. Yeah. And beyond that, the people who were on the news crew that I rolled around with for two years, my camera guys, my editors, my producers, my interns, I am still friends with almost every single person. I stay in touch with almost every single person. Yeah. We are all still homies. My actual ground crew of people who would like go to festivals, be the other person on the other side of the camera are some of the greatest people I've ever known who I work with and I'm friends with to this day. So like incredible experience across the board, largely because of the people and not the famous people, although they were great too, yeah. most of the time. Yeah, really. Who, who, was, who, so. who did you most enjoy meeting on, on the famous side? Oh, Enya. Enya? Yeah. I, Enya. Enya, who I almost passed out on the red carpet at the Grammys when I saw her, because if you know anything about Enya, you know, she doesn't leave Ireland. Right. Yeah. So it was, what are you doing here in Los Angeles? And her response was like, MTV wants to talk to me. And I'm like foaming at the mouth. Like, I just want to take the opportunity to say that there's an entire generation of vocalists who wouldn't be able to do what we do without your work and everything. She's like, honey, I can tell you really love your job. And I'm like, oh, can I please take a picture with you? I don't take pictures with him. It's Enya. And yeah. to this day, it's like on, on my Instagram, one of the greatest moments of my life. I was just like, please let me tell you how much your work changed me and everyone. Yeah. And like in the last few years, there's been a major, another uptick of interest in Enya and her body of work. And I'm just like, 
I can't believe it. I feel like, like there's like five people in the world who've gotten to yeah. have that experience. Um, she's incredible. She's like peak hero to me. Um, other people who I loved talking to at MTV, of course, uh, Flying Lotus, but around, because I've always been a huge fan of his music, but when he made Kuso, yeah. the horror movie that he made a few years ago, I got to talk to him and then I got to go to LA and go to the premiere. And like, I had to, I saw Kuso like seven times in like a five day period, which is amazing for your brain. Yeah. Um, better than drugs, yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but really cool. That was like a really incredible experience because I loved that movie so much. And he's like, absolute genius you know absolute genius um really really cool and then just like i have fun memories of silly stuff like i interviewed big boy and i found out he's like a really big kate bush yes. fan. so we ended up singing singing wuthering heights like in the middle of a field in chicago one day which was really sweet um i gave Lil uzi vert a copy of hitchhiker's guide to the <laughs> galaxy because his record with all the space songs had just come out and then like if you need something to read you know like I'm, yeah I'm such a mom oh that's I'm so cool that's so cool I'm like yeah Everyone is way nicer than you would expect. Every Selena Gomez loves horror movies. And so we just got totally sidetracked from her record talking about like slasher films and ways to die. And like, it was really nice. Yeah. So. Yeah. She was in what she's in. She's in Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die, right? That's mm-hmm. so cool. Mm-hmm. I just realized. Speaking of a magician, man, Jim Jarmusch in his cinematic world. Well, he's, he's the next level. He's the, the, um, I get nervous for these podcast interviews sometimes, but having him on the show, that was like high, by far the most nervous that I was. Mm -hmm. And it went away about a minute in because he was just so engaged and he just, he really did just want to talk. So it was like, oh my God, what a generous situation. You know what I mean? That's the, but, but yeah, but then, yeah, I'm like, I don't want to sound stupid in front of Jim Jarmusch. It would (laughs) really be bad for me if I sounded really stupid in front of Jim Jarmusch, but um but yeah and it yeah anyway so that's i mean that i know that feeling i know that (laughs) feeling very very well and it 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 it's not necessarily a flag of great progress to come like when you can put it to bed and especially when the person is special that's that's a very nice end i love i love though that you had that experience with enya who is somebody whose work as it's been really her work is one of it's is it been interesting to see the way it has been reevaluated um and it's not just not just Enya. You can sort of see and it's been cool to be sort of paying attention to this beat, you know, the sort of new age beat, you know. Um, but just mm-hmm. a, a general reappraisal of um, you know, Douglas McGowan's great compilation, I Am the Center, which Light in the Attic put out, you know, in the early part of last decade, mm-hmm. where he really correctly and I think uh importantly repositioned so many of these artists people like laraji constance Demby, uh yasos all these people as as avant-garde figures you know um who embraced varying forms of alternative spirituality it's not a single unified one but that embrace had written them out of the serious experimental music conversation um unjustly you know and so i think we've seen a big we've started to see a, a, a turn around in certain regards and and that's something i wanted to ask you about in, in terms of your work at kickstarter which was that you helped to oversee sort of the formalization of a of a ma- magic and divination division right is that is that the right would that be the right way to put it honestly it's a writer way to put it than i normally would because now i want to have a little like boy scout logo for my shirt that says magic and divination division yeah. <laughs> because that makes it sound like we're like a squadron in some astral world war yeah. like we're the broom squad or something yeah. that's very cute yeah magic and divination uh we think of kickstarter as having categories or domains right. so everything you know like music art games but then within games like video games tabletop games what we call them what our community calls them you hear them called categories subcategories domains but yeah uh, where we're usually organized by industry after a few years of research and a lot of generous assistance from our community, we did last fall launch a formal space for what we call magic and divination on Kickstarter, which is the first, uh, space on the site curated by topics. So it's everything from translations of actual ancient magical texts to tabletop games that deal with magical systems and casting spells to cute, animated films, uh, pretty much anything you can imagine that has a correlation or or involvement with 
magic and a culture, it ends up there because we have such like a magnificent community of people making and supporting those projects. It, it goes without saying they deserve their own space and all the recognition they deserve. So we finally made it formal. That's so cool. What, what was the process like of, <laughs> of formalizing that? Like what did, what did, what did, yeah, what were the internal conversations? Because you were already there doing this sort of like, you don't have to reveal like company, you know, uh, back chatter or whatever. But I'm just, I'm just curious because it's, I will never reveal the Wu-Tang secret. <laughs> no, no, you, you can imagine because I'll tell you the way that it works. Because, uh, you know, making something exist on the computer, like physically building a website and saying, put all these projects here, that's one yeah. thing. But what really happened was I had a seed of an idea strike me not long after I began my tenure as director of music, which is about four years ago. And what it took was me starting to understand our platform and the communities that use it at the same time that I was really digging into this, both the history of a culture and crowdfunding, which is its own absolutely ancient topic. That's very, very fascinating that I've put considerable amount of time looking into in the last few years, but it, you know, it familiarized me with our community and our platform. It also allowed me to look into its history while also starting to scheme up ways we could more effectively assist people in getting the financial support they need to do what they want to do. So for the first few years that I was there, you know, I noticed tarot cards were appearing in every single category was how it really started. Yeah. They would show up in art. They'd show up in games under playing cards. A Hitchcock deck would show up in film. And I said, does that make it hard to track? Like how many pro people are coming to Kickstarter to run tarot projects every year? People said, well, we've never tried that. So it started as an experiment for me to just kind of try and figure it out really, really, really quickly. We realized like, witches have been interested in crowdfunding and have understood it from day one. And it's very, very obvious when you think about it. The entire premise of Kickstarter, Kickstarter is a magical engine. And I love talking to people about this, to be honest. It's, again, it's a blessing that my job is my job. Kickstarter campaigns, you put something out as if it already exists and it doesn't. And through the power of collective hallucination, the thing eventually gets made yeah. and it goes to absolutely delight people who know they were part of the ritual of bringing it into you in classical ceremonial magic and other, you always talk about manifesting something into physical form. That is literally what my creators are doing all day, every day. It's very fascinating if you think about it. So yeah. witches were OGs on Kickstarter. And we really quickly discovered that in like the annals of fact that like, oh man, people have like... Kickstarter and crowdfunding, what I eventually discovered, basically supplemented the tarot renaissance that happened at the turn of the 21st century when we went from, you know, the previous few centuries of the history of the tarot and it's leaking into like Western culture. The next great revolution after the reveal of the Golden Dawn systems in the late 19th century and the early 20th century release of Pamela Coleman Smith's Rider Waite, Rider Waite Smith tarot deck was the advent of the internet the turn of the millennium and people via the internet gaining the ability to kind of make their own deck, whatever it is, right. and like produce their version of it and get it out to people, right? right? It's so obvious if you look at that and the way the internet plays into this moment of tarot, just as like the one great example, you can easily see how crowdfunding becomes obvious. Yeah. And there have been so many people over the years who've brought some of the most incredible, most curious, most well-considered, most magical decks I've ever seen through Kickstarter and then so much more. So that was really what it was, was me slowly over a few years realizing that this had been happening and then finding out it also interested a ton of other people and then making time and blessedly getting permission to like start working with some of those artists in addition to the music artists that I help every day. And then by the time we started like a few years ago, it seems like, you know, and this is an analysis point for someone else, but all of a sudden there's this other resurgence of interest in the occult that's happening now that we're all speculating on. When that started to hit, I was like, we should really look at this. And thankfully, by that point, everyone was like, yes, we're in. Yeah. And so we spent the better part of last year figuring out how we were going to bring that to the world. And we're not done yet. There's going to be a bunch of cool stuff happening in the year ahead that we'll be able to start talking about really soon. But that was how it came about. Those are the big, deep internal secrets. So that for a couple of years, I was just like, hey, everybody, look how great everyone's doing. Yeah. And everyone was like, everyone is doing great. <laughs> and then we said, let's do something more formal about this. Yeah. We pull in creators from, from every category, from every industry, from every discipline. It's truly incredible. Um, not just how many people make how much absolutely tremendous art yeah. on our platform, but how incredible all my coworkers are who have thrown in and just been like, yes, we believe in the power of wizards on our website and we want to support this community and make sure they too have the support and like resources they need to get their stuff seen and made and uplifted and their financial independence as artists secured. Like 
very, very cool. Very, very lucky to to be with these people in this quest. That's awesome. That's awesome. It was such a cool thing to see, to see it announced in, like you said, sort of Thank a you. formal a formal proclamation. And I was like, this is a really, this yeah. is a really cool thing. Um, what do you, you know, I, I mentioned earlier the sort of, um, the great essay you wrote for TalkHouse about uh, Lana Del Rey and Andrew WK. And I feel like maybe... Lana's uh, hex, like her, her, like uh, when, she, when d- during the Trump, or, uh, maybe, maybe it was like right after Trump had been uh, elected, she, she did, she kind of like went viral for for doing this weird thing, and of course you saw all the stuff, right? So you saw like the holier than thou, snooty, like silly, like listen to how dumb this thing is, you know, you saw that, you know. Sure. For me, though, the reason I bring that up is not just an excuse to potentially talk about Lana Del Rey, which I'm more than happy to do because <laughs> I'm a I'm a really big fan. Um, and uh, but anyway, the reason I bring that up is because it it seemed like one of the sort of mile markers, right, in terms of this um, right. sort of magical resurgence, at least among. That's so interesting. I've never thought of okay. that. Does it? Can you write this book? Will Will you and Mitch Horowitz maybe write this? Oh, book? geez, I don't know. That's that's a crazy and amazing thing to think about. But um, but did but did, did it? I mean, because to me, it it's that seemed like this thing, right? Where all of a sudden there was a, and now you know the TikTok witches and and everything, and there's so much, right? And 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 I do find that so much of the pop expressions of these ideas flatline certain really crucial stuff or, or whatever, but I don't want to get into any of that, like telling people how or what they should be, you know, thinking. Sure. All sure. that said, Lana's we're going to hex Trump thing felt like a, like a shift to me. It felt like a, it felt like things started to just in terms of people talking about this stuff and in terms of like younger, uh, particularly women particularly you know uh you know but not 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 solely not exclusively you know so it's such a it's such a weird moment and i wonder if when that happened i mean did you have some sort of sense of like the wind changing direction slightly yourself i think again i just i i would not have come to that conclusion myself i think it's an amazing one like i really would love to read it. i would that's the book that i want to if, if that's the pitch i'm sold okay right like definitely give me that um we'll have to kickstart it yeah <laughs> <sighs> well i know a guy um that said i think the point that you raise about about images of witchcraft and bringing about another image of it and then what Lana Del Rey did versus like pop depictions because here's the thing about history our modern definition and our modern understanding and our embracing and our practice of witchcraft is informed by a number of past sources right right? because of concerns about widespread literacy which I go on about all the time it's still aspirational definitely was back then and who was in control of the lyric classes so much of our understanding of historical witchcraft is through things like the court records, right? right? right. Like even the, the earliest documentation we have of tarot is it being outlawed among a group of soldiers because it was a game that made them lazy, right? So pop depictions of witchcraft have always been critical to helping people understand their own more nuanced definitions of what magic is. There's a grain of truth in all of it, but you have to know yeah. that you're always getting like a dagwood of sources when you're trying to derive like where your contemporary image or your practice is coming from, right? Certainly. So I think that's cool. I think that's super cool. I think there's also historic, there's absolutely historical precedent for like exactly, you can imagine someone in the courts of Versailles during the time of Marie Antoinette being an artist who comes forth and dares and says, okay, let's hex the king, right? Like that happened. It was the affair of the poisons, right? right? And there were, was La Voisin a poisoner or was she mostly just a show person? Probably just like, we're looking historically, the history of witchcraft is the history of pop images and popular discourse and then actual practice and only from that can we kind of decipher how we landed where we are today, yeah, yeah. right? Because, you know, doing away with the early 20th century like, resuscitation of this idea of like the witch culture, a past unified practice, I think we're all past the point of believing that. And I think now more than ever, we do understand that idea that our direct immediate understanding of witchcraft today is mostly informed by historical court records and not by any actual practices that people had, which were much less likely to be documented pre-literacy. 
um, or were documented in really specific ways, or the books were hidden, or the books were burned, or trolala, whatever the case may be. Um, but I think it's a fascinating question. And if I, yeah, again, if I had a book like at least three hundred pages about <laughs> who was the Lana Del Rey of Versailles, I need to think really hard about this. There have always been Lana Del Rey's in spirituality, and I love I love her. I love that. I also firmly believe that like as a person, as a, let's look at her just strictly as a magical operator. She's most certainly influenced our culture in wonderfully irreparable ways. Yeah. She's cast many charms over all of us. I really love Lana Del Rey. And, you know, when I wrote that article, full disclosure, I had never even listened to her music, which was the only reason I felt equipped to write it. Right. Because I I had already received that much information about her. And that was all I was mad that that information was weighing on me and it kept me from wanting to know what her music sounded like. And then I heard her music after I published <laughs> that. And I was like, I am vindicated. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's cool. Um, but I was just so obsessed in that like dorky role in Barth kind of way with like who she was as an image and what she meant to people that I went in on that, not really listening to either of their music at the time. It was literally the manufacture of the image was all I was looking yeah. at. So yeah, no, that, She's very interesting. Well, yeah, absolutely, because that is really, uh, she remains that, uh, uh, like, uh, an idea. There's, I don't, whether or not you care for someone's music, mm-hmm. you know, you there are still these things where you can, like, recognize, like, the persona as, as, as mm-hmm. an entity in and of itself and something that is in interaction with the culture. And I... I mean, I feel that way about Kanye West, um, you know, who I love some of his music on it, you know, and then some Mm -hmm. of his stuff I don't like. And and he's a deeply uh, conflicting figure. But I think of him. I think of Lou Reed. I think of these people, David Bowie. You know, these are all people Mm -hmm. who are ideas outside of the the their art even you know or maybe that is their art and everything falls in line with it but it exists outside of it as well and so i think the way you wrote about her and you wrote chiefly about the different way that we will accept a persona mm-hmm. uh, a, a, a male persona versus a, a a woman you know that's all like intense and anyway that was a lot of fun to read but i do think about when she was on SNL and she kind of didn't sound great on SNL or whatever, like I'd remember that being this flashpoint moment in culture. And I right. was like, kind of just, I, I, I wasn't like brand new to writing, but I was still not, you know, entirely comfortable. So I'm like grappling with a lot of stuff. And I remember f- worrying that there was a regressive quality to her character. And it was like, you know, we don't need to glorify, you know, violence against women and it felt like that was maybe part of it and a decade later or a decade plus you know i recognize like we were using lana to have the same conversations we're always we're always finding someone that allows us to have the same conversation you know or some variation of the conversation um and there's always a moral panic and there's always a lot of other stuff and it's all just part of we just see it recreate over Mm -hmm. and over and over Mm -hmm. again my hope is that we're in an age where maybe some new archetypes are going to be invented so that we can start having some new conversations too because i don't know if the old conversations will ever completely go away um Mm-hmm. So, well, the archetypes never go right, away. Right. Every time I land on something like that, I have to put up a big caveat of like, I'm so sorry to any uh, dedicated Jungians who may be listening. Like, I'm going to misuse nearly every yeah. word. I have only like the barest, the barest bones understanding of Jungian psychology. But like, that's the whole thing about the archetypes. Over identifying with one of them is a symptom of disease. Yeah. yeah. And like the whole is that's one reason why, like, even as a person of great gender curiosity and interstitial existence, I'm writing as if there is a male and a female persona. When I write about things like that, that was literally one of the first things I ever published. But it's still something I can look back on and say, okay, I knew what I was doing there, which is we're talking about that male female in more of like a uh electric currents kind of sense or on a mixing board or like plugging one thing into another. Like it's just alchemically you also see this if you go far enough back you start to see like the male and the female properties of things and it's all like the encoded arcane Mm -hmm. that is it and so i think you're right i think because of the vastness of the archetypes 
we're, we're going to see new ones in response to whatever needs responding to at any given moment. But I also think it's fascinating how on the topic of like, what is an archetype safe for an impossibly rigid thing that can also be broken at any moment? Yeah. Lana didn't. And we just, she really held it down. Yeah. And as always, as the grace we often give to male artists again, we had to get four or five albums before we saw where she was going with all of it. And she did not waver. Yeah. And that is why I stand electric <laughs> to this day. I'm just like, I'm now completely dedicated to her as a kind of weird subversive artist. Yeah. I think she, she makes a lot of people mad by simply refusing to stop. Yeah. So I enjoy her so much. I would love to you know, play triangle on her records someday. I think she's incredibly cool and effective. So. I hope that happens. <laughs> if only. Well, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> you know, weirder things have probably happened at this point. Right. Put that on manifestation. Yeah. Let's see what we let's see what we can do. Anything is possible. Yeah. Well, right? you've got to get to practicing your triangle skills and I've got to start working on like a book proposal apparently. So um Absolutely. So, <laughs> we leave we leave with more ideas than we started with. That's always a good sign. It was so much fun having you on, and I knew that it was going to be so much fun to talk with you, and it uh, delivered even more than I expected, and I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to hang out with us and and to get into all this stuff and uh, for all the great stuff you've made and all the great stuff you're helping to bring into the world. What a cool, What a cool thing. Thank you for taking the time. Well, thank you so very much for having me. This is, you know enough one of those shows where i look at every brilliant person that you've had on as a guest and i'm like you mean you want to hang out with me for like an hour this is incredible so th thank you for letting me sneak in the back door of the halls of greatness <laughs> and congratulations on always having such wonderful people on your show well thank you and thank you for being one of them uh and uh yeah we'll we'll do this again sometime absolutely cool Thanks for listening to Transmissions. I know how much uh, competition we have for your attention on the World Wide Web, so I'm very honored that you have opted to spend time with our program today. You can support Transmissions by checking out Aquarium Drunkard on Patreon, support an independent media outlet, and get some cool stuff like bonus audio and our Philomath print zine in the process. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce Transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, and the show is executive produced by Aquarium Drunkard's founder and head honcho, Justin Gage. We are a part of the TalkHouse podcast network. Don't miss the Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. PST on Sirius XMU. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word if you dig transmissions. Next week on the show, I'll be joined by Owen Ashworth of Advanced Bass, Cassia Tone for The Painfully Alone, and Orindel Records. It's great chat, and I am very excited to share it with you all. Okay, back next Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. This transmission is concluded. Let me let me